Our study will eventually come from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But first, just to set the stage a little bit, last week, or the week before actually, a new law went into effect in Canada, our beloved neighbors to the north, that has to do with a conversion therapy ruling, actually a prohibition of conversion therapy. Now we'll get to their, how they define that issue in just a moment, but the impact of that law upon the church in Canada is really what's at stake here and how they have defined it, this, this therapy process, and even the background behind it, the thinking behind this law is, uh, is troublesome. And what does this mean for, for churches preaching the gospel? which we kind of are in the business of conversion, but it's a different different uh, sense of conversion that, that uh, they're talking about. All that to say is over 3,000 pastors in America, in the States, and in Canada, and around the world even, have um, chosen to preach on this idea of conversion, biblical conversion, but also a biblical sexuality, because that's what they're concerned with. That's what the law was concerning, concerned with. We offer this not in, by way of, you know, poking people in the eye and saying, well, you know, fooey on you or, 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 um, having animosity toward people, even though we realize God is angry with sinners all day long. Why is he, why is he kind to us? Why does he even let us live? Because he's gracious and we need to be gracious one to another, realizing the certainty that Jesus changes lives, he's changed our lives. If you're in Christ, he has changed you and put you on a sure foundation. The church brings the gospel so people's lives can change. That's our hope. We don't want to be like we are today. We want to be more like Christ. Day by day, it can be conformed to his image. Well, all that to say is, in the last, I guess it started at the end of November, a bill was presented in the Canadian um, House of Commons, and then of course it went to the Senate and, and was unanimously approved both in the House and I believe in the Senate back at the early part of December. It went on to more like a, a rubber stamp approval by the Queen since Canada is part of the, the uh, British Commonwealth. And it came into force 30 days after. So beginning, well, it was last, last week or the week before rather that this law came into effect. Well, what is this law? It's an amendment to an existing law regarding conversion therapy. And I'm going to show you a few things about it and read some, some comments about it. Not to belabor the point, but just to show you the thought process that went into this law, the implications they intend for this law, but also I'll give you a little hint. It's not just in Canada that this is going on. Uh, we'll see how that goes on here. This is Bill C-4 that was passed, and as, as I mentioned, and uh, is now law in Canada, and that defines conversion therapy. They say that conversion therapy causes harm to the persons who are subjected to it. And they say, whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society, because, among other things, and notice this, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. Now, there's an, a nice way to say myths or to use myths kind of in a, in a, in a broad story and, and a, you know, a narrative flow. So myth can be a, a, a neutral kind of a statement. But the way that they're using this language here, a myth would be something that is uh, uh, made up. It's, it's a, uh, how does the Merriam-Webster Dictionary has a definition, an unfounded or false notion. 
That's really what they intend. It's, a, it's an unfounded or false notion. And they use the, the second term there, stereotypes, which is, uh, again, Merriam-Webster says, a standardized mental picture that is held in common by members of a group and that resem- represents an oversimplified opinion, prejudiced attitude, or uncritical judgment. So what they're saying is conversion therapy, conversion therapists, those who hold to a particular pattern, and it's a very particular pattern of, of sexuality that, that they're against, it's because it's based on myths and stereotypes, uncritical assumptions, prejudice opinions, false notions, unfounded things. Well, it goes on and introduces or it goes on with this this definition, including the myth, again, an unfounded notion or uh, unfounded or false notion, the myth that heterosexuality, which is the attraction of male and female, cisgender, which has to do with having a, a view of your own sexuality that agrees with, well, even that is made you, that, that matches your biology, you know, and there's even these acronyms, um, assigned male at birth, a M-A-B, or assigned female at birth, which has nothing to do with how you may view yourself now. Cisgender means if you're assigned male at birth, then you are cisgender male. I'm a cisgender male in this kind of a definition. And gender expression. There used to be a term, in fact, it was interesting, uh, there used to be a term which isn't used anymore. It's called transvestite, somebody who is dressing contrary to their their sex, a male dressing as a female. Gender expression, how do you present yourself uh, that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth? Uh, the, the, and this is the issue, that that thing, this idea of heterosexuality or uh, other things are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender, gender identities, and gender expressions. All that to say is gender conversion or conversion therapy is more concerned with making or confounding the myth, the stereotype that male-female marriage ultimately is a is a is a myth, is an unfounded or false notion, is something that we need to throw out, something that is not applicable, something not uh, appropriate to our enlightened age. They go on and define more. Whereas, in light of those harms, it's important to discourage and denounce even the provision of conversion therapy in order to protect the human dignity and equality of all Canadians. And then it says, now therefore Her Majesty uh, establishes this law. And this is how they define conversion therapy. Conversion therapy is a practice, treatment, or service designed, and they have, I think, six uh, statements here, to change a person's sexual orientation to, to heterosexual. So you, you, you cannot now, in Canada, provide a practice, treatment, or service to change somebody to become heterosexual. What is interesting is they, it's only one way. This is only one way converse, conversion. Can you practice, treat, or serve somebody to change them to a homosexual lifestyle? But then they say, no, you, you were born this way, right? You're born how you are. You can't change, not born male or female, but born uh, with, with a, a gender identity that may or may not match with your biological uh, assignment at birth. So they're only concerned with a service that would convert people to heterosexuality, not the opposite direction. B, it says, change a person's gender identity to cisgender so that their sexual identity, their gender identity, would match their biology. And C, there, it says, to change a person's gender expression so it confirms to the sex assigned to the person at birth. D and E and F, and you can read all these things about um, what what are they up to. 
the sponsor, at least in the Senate, in the, in the Canadian Senate, uh, said conversion therapy is an odious practice that stigmatizes and discriminates against lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and two-spirit communities. That's that acronym LGBTQ+. Did I get all the letters, I think? LGBTQ+, yes. And there's, there's hundreds of pluses, hundreds of other expressions that could be practiced there. He goes on and says, This practice is harmful for those subjected to it and detrimental to society in, gentle, in general. Pseudotherapies that perpetuate stereotypes and myths have no place in Canadian society. He says further, these are based on the premise that LGBTQ plus individuals can and must change. Now, that's where we get this conversion idea, that these people can change, which is unfounded myth. That's, that's, not, that's not true in his perspective. And that they even should, that there's a moral imperative behind it. His assumption is, and of course he's in that classification of LGBTQ+, he would say that I was born this way, I don't need to change, and by the way, I can't change. I'm just who I am, and I accept myself. It came at a great cost. He says... And again, lest we think, oh, this was just for therapeutic, you know, uh, psychological or psychiatric situations. No, he said, in most cases, the conversion therapy was experienced in religious settings. And in other cases, it was considered healthcare. Esteemed colleagues, conversion therapy is a real thing. It is harmful and it's still going on in our country. He says, no form of conversion therapy will be tolerated in Canada. We are criminalizing conversion therapy in all settings, regardless of age or consent. This is an interesting statement, too. And again, not to belabor the point, but just to show his perspective, which is matched by, I mean, it's universal perspective that, oh, this, this biblical sexual morality is so old-fashioned, it's, it's angry against people, it discriminates, it's prejudiced. He says, conversion therapy practices posit that there is something fundamentally wrong with LGBTQ plus individuals and that they should change who they are, who they love, and how they express themselves to arrive at a sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression that some believe is preferable. Now, see, we studied last week, which is why we did it last week. Marriage is not just somebody's idea. Male or female is not just somebody's idea. It is God's design. He made male and female. He didn't make other, uh, other variety of, of gender. And he made then the expression of male and female, the relationship that is to be uh, not just preferred, but mandated for all people by God's design and decree. He said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two become one flesh. Jesus added, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate or tear asunder. So what they're saying is people that disagree with God's design and decree are fine. Why should they change? They can't change. They're, they are who they are. And that is, is something that, that we just need to accept. We need to affirm. In fact, his closing statement is, we seek to recognize or we seek full recognition for the fundamental right of each and every person to live in dignity. Oh, well, that would be nice. We want to live in dignity. But where do we get our dignity? It's, it's by obeying God's will. It's by doing what God wants us to do. It's by by living not in rebellion against him. It is living in submission to him. It is living in obedience to what he said, not because it is burdensome, not because we say, oh, it's, it's so hard to please God, so hard to live for God's glory. No, this is life. This is life to glorify God, to enjoy his favor granted to us through Christ himself. 
Now, again, lest we think, oh, this is in Canada, and we love those people in Canada, but, but it's not in the States. Do you know that there are 21 states out of 50? So two, two-fifths, what is that? Well, 20, 42%, right? Do all the math. You're impressed, aren't you? 21 states have banned conversion therapy. Kentucky's not one of them, and yet the... There are cities or municipalities in Ohio and in Kentucky, Ohio, that has banned conversion therapy. Cincinnati, Columbus, Dayton, Toledo. In Kentucky, Covington was the first municipality in Kentucky to ban conversion therapy. I believe that is only for minors, conversion therapy for minors, but I, I, it might be more broad than that. Uh, Covington, Louisville also, and Lexington um, just last year passed a conversion therapy ban or prohibition. So the question is, can people, LGBTQ plus individuals, can they change? Should they change? Yes, to both answers. Is it even possible? How can this even be? How can God not like uh, these these situations? You know, we, we pick on, and we don't necessarily, but we focus on these kind of uh, sensational sins, but we, we need to look at a, a, this is where we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We look at this text and we realize sexual sin is just one more category of defiance and rebellion or disobedience to God. And we can change. It is who we were apart from Christ, but now in Christ we have hope. We realize then that God's will is important. We offer the gospel not as a means of, of beating people over the head, you know, repent or, or be damned kind of a thing, which is a true statement, but it's repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you can and shall be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's not just, as I've said before, not just something we look forward to in the future, being saved from the hellfire, you know, eternal wrath and, and, and uh, destruction of, of, of the fire, but right now a different life. We can live a life that pleases God for the first time in our lives. We can do what honors God, what glorifies him, not to be alienated in mind and hostile in our thoughts and engaged in evil deeds. Now we're brought near through Christ. Well, these, these verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, 9 through 11, we'll look rather briefly at it and then have a, an implication of it here in just a moment. But 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God. Paul says here in verse 9, Do you not know? Which is to say, y'all better know this. You need to realize the truth of the gospel. You should know this. You need to affirm it. You need to recognize that God is in the business of being holy. That is to say, holy, holy, holy is God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he shares his holiness. He shares his glory with no one else. And yet he will share he will grant righteousness based uh, to those who uh, repent and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He, he, said, he uses that generic term, the unrighteous, and then he defines or gives examples of what does that look like. Now, this list in verses 9 and 10, it's not a complete list. 
uh, I think it's Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29, says, God made men upright. And that's men and women, boy and girl. God made them to be righteous and, and perfect and just and holy, but they have sought out many devices. Now, he's not just talking about smartphones and tablets and those kind of devices. He's talking about schemes and plans and plottings and rebellions. And, and even uh, the Proverbs talk about those who plot evil on their beds. I mean, just, ah, oh, I'm going to figure out a way to, to violate this person or steal that or, or get what I want. God made men upright. But they have sought out many devices. They have strayed. Isaiah 53 says, we have strayed like sheep away. And Peter brings up that idea in 2 Peter 2.25. We we have strayed from our pastor, our overseer, the Lord Christ. We have turned aside to our own our own schemes, what we think, what we think is going to satisfy us. And he says, don't you know that the unrighteous, those who put their own sense of righteousness or Forget about righteousness. I just want this. I I think this is the the way to my happiness, my pleasure, my identity. This is who I am. And Paul says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Which is a negative way to say, if you want to make it more positive, the unrighteous, or maybe say it this way, the righteous will inherit the kingdom of God, or the righteous will. Those who are righteous by grace through faith, by the way, not those who are righteous in their own works, but those who receive that righteousness and are now acting that out in their lives, they will inherit, not earn, by the way. To inherit something means it's, it's a, it's a gift based on or not based on works. It is something that is a, a, a grant or a, a kindness, something that is, and not just a small thing, like if I were to, you know, and you were to inherit this little, uh, cough drop. And you say, thank you very much. I'm very pleased to receive that. Well, that's that's nothing value. You probably have 10 of these in your purse or pocket. Uh, it's nothing. But to receive, to inherit the kingdom of God, that is something. That is something of value. That is something that not everybody receives. What did he say? Not Those who are unrighteous will not receive entrance into the kingdom of God. But those who then are righteous by grace through faith can and will. Notice he says that these unrighteous are uh, they're unrighteous. That is to say, they're not just, they're not holy, they're not acting in obedience or submission to God's rules, his mandate, his design and decrees. We studied last week in marriage and, and specific, and we realized that instead of not inheriting the kingdom of God, they will inherit something and not inherit it. They will have deserved and earned something. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is, oh, forget about it. Well, let's just get along. God said, no, the wages of sin is death. So to, to miss out on this kingdom of God, it's a really significant issue. For the unrighteous not to inherit the kingdom of God, what do they get? What do they earn? What is their just reward then? It is death. It is judgment. It is punishment. Why? How dare you pronounce judgment or punishment on other people? I'm not declaring it. God is saying it. And God is the one. I don't have any authority in my own self. My authority comes from the word of God. And God graciously has revealed his plans, his provision for unrighteous people like you and me to be forgiven and made just and uh, be sanctified and washed then in our lives. We're not offering condemnation for people. We are offering Forgiveness. We are offering cleansing. We're offering real life. People think they have life apart from Christ, and it's not. It may look good. It may be all shiny and, and, and smell sweet and all that, but inside it is filth. It is death. 
It is destruction. It is estrangement. It is, it is not what Christ wants in our lives. The gospel can change those who are unrighteous to be in a position, a condition to inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. We studied Luke's gospel here recently. Do you realize the most predominant usage of that phrase, the kingdom of God, is in Luke's gospel? Of all the gospels, I think it's twice as many times as the next nearest one, which I think was Mark. Maybe I forget who the other one was. But Luke uses that phrase, kingdom of God, and he talks about the, the rule, the reign of God, the presence of God. The, the, it's almost a, a synonym for salvation, being part of God's kingdom, being part of his, his entourage, being part of his court, being part of his uh, presence. And of course, the contrast is those who are not part of the kingdom of God have none of that. They, they receive the exact opposite. Well, what, what does he say here? Do not be deceived, he says here in verse 9. Do not be deceived means that there's a possibility we can be deceived. What are we to be deceived about? That the unrighteous could possibly, you know, all roads lead to heaven. God it certainly will be gracious. I mean, if God is all these things you, you say is loving and kind and merciful, well, I'll be fine because he'll show mercy to me. Me who have no thought of him, me who who pursues uh, wickedness and and uh, drinks violence like water, kind of God'll no, I've done so much good in my life, surely the good in my life will over overcome or outweigh the bad stuff I've done, and who's God to judge anyway? I mean, good grief, I'm a good person, or I don't believe there's a God, and if he is, I'll just come up and say, "Hey, I know something about you." How could you let so much evil and suffering and death and disease and all this happen? How dare you? Do so we find fault with God? That's what people do. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived thinking, oh, you've got this figured out. Oh, it's going to be fine after all. No. We want to believe what is true and what is right. Jesus says, uh, see to it that no one deceives you. What is he, what's that context? Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, the, the sermon where he's presenting truth about the end times. And he says, watch out, because many will come even in my name and saying, I'm he, and, but watch out lest you be deceived, but lest you be taken in by that false teaching. So much in Scripture, especially Paul at the end of his life, well, throughout his life really, is all about identifying and correcting false doctrine, refuting false doctrine. Uh, in, in 2 Timothy 3, for example, he talks about the false doctrine, the doctrines of demons that will come forward. We think, oh, that's spiritual warfare and stuff, when we don't really believe in all that. Spiritual warfare is going on, unless we realize it or not, and we should remain steadfast in the truth, not be deceived, not be hoodwinked, not be uh, swayed by such uh, compassionate arguments, maybe, or passionate arguments, anyway, from people like the senator we read behind this bill in Canada. We are valiant for the truth and aggressive in love. We are standing on the truth of God's word and offering it in loving, uh, patient gentleness toward other people, knowing that, wow, unless God had opened my eyes, I would be just like that person, probably even worse than that person. But in Christ, I have been brought near. Now, he gives several statements here, and we'll just touch on them, maybe uh, scot hopscotch over them. Uh, he says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, all these things. He says, not these, not that, not these people. He's, he's identifying classes of individuals or classes of behavior of people, not that we have the sexually immoral over here and the adulterers over here and the thieves and robbers and swindlers over here. These sins are just entangled in our hearts. Jesus said in Matthew 15, it's not the stuff that goes in our body that defiles us, it's what comes out. And it's this stuff. 
this immorality, this impurity, the evil desire and greed, which is idolatry. We saw that back in Colossians 3 and verse 5. Watch out for those things. Because people would say, well, I've, you know, I've never killed anybody. Well, is that the only basis for whether you're righteous or unrighteous? No. We have every, unregenerate man has every capacity and every potentiality for any of these sins. Anything of this. The unrighteous is characterized by these things, but also um, uh, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. This is Galatians 5. In the context of the fruit of the Spirit is this. But the deeds or the works of the flesh are these. They're disgusting. They're they're wicked. They, They are worthy of the wrath of God. And he goes on to describe that in Galatians 5. Also, Ephesians 5 says these things. What are the sexually immoral? Those who are... Uh, another term would be fornicators, those who have sexual sin outside of marriage, not with reference to marriage. That's adultery that would go on there. And even this idea of immorality is not, is an inclusive, all-inclusive term. And it can refer to any number of, of aberrations or deprivations regarding God's design of human sexuality. He says, not idolaters, those who have or worship idols in their heart, not worshiping God alone, as the commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven images and so forth. Well, we don't have idols. We don't have, don't we have idols? Don't we have things that we establish in our lives that somehow we will worship and orient our lives around other than Christ, other than the word of God? What kind of idolatry is going on there? Idolatry is not just an Old Testament issue. It's not just a New Testament issue. We have issues of idolatry now. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are idolatry. Greed, which is idolatry. He talks about greed here in the, in the next verse, being greedy. He talks about, um, in Revelation chapter 21, the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Notice Paul is not just fo- focusing on sexual issues. He's saying anything in your life that would draw you away from God and his holiness and his perfection into something that, that you think is going to satisfy. No, it is deceptive. It is wicked. It is worthy of God's wrath and condemnation, not just temporal, but eternal punishment. We can see in each of these cases, by the way, that whereas the unrighteous are characterized by this, there are commands, which means if if there's a command, then we can do it. There are commands to do the exact opposite, not to be sexually immoral, but to be pure. In fact, we and and to be not idolaters, but to be worshiping God. Uh, the Scripture will teach us about the the importance of purity in our lives, sexual purity and integrity, and to honor the marriage bed and keep it undefiled and so forth. Not to um, be idolaters, but to uh, worship and serve God Himself. To flee idolatry. First Corinthians ten and verse fourteen says. And to avoid greed, which is idolatry, verse 5 of Colossians 3 says. He says sexual immoral idolaters, adulterers, that has reference to marriage where a husband is going after another person, not his wife, and or vice versa, a wife after somebody, not her husband. It is 
uh, those who have uh, the, the violation of that covenant of companionship, which we studied last week, those who would violate that, that unity between a man and a woman. And of course, it is a characteristic of unrighteous, but it is also a commandment, right? Seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And uh, the sexually immoral and adulterous God will judge, Hebrews 13.4. Well, how can God judge, some, God judge me for something that I don't have any responsibility of? I was born this way. God, you made me like this. And God says, no, I made you upright, but you have sought out and, and gone astray, and you inherited it from Adam, but you're still responsible for your sin. Repent and believe in the gospel, and I will help you. I will forgive you. I'll cleanse you and change you. He says, and these, these two words at the, at the end of verse 9, nor effeminate nor homosexuals. These two words have been translated various ways. Um, with, with some respect, they have to do, and you'll see in, in beginning verse 12 in this chapter, that Paul talks about um, uh, male or um, temple or, or uh, shrine cult prostitutes, that, uh, a sexual aberration that thought that that uh, in the worship of these different gods, especially in Corinth, by the way, Corinth was a great temple of Aphrodite, and there were all kind of nasty things going on around that. Paul could be referring to that issue. He could be referring to the the homosexual or, or same-sex uh, attraction and practice that is, is, is defiled. Romans 1 talks about that as well. Uh, so it, it talks about that. Sexual immoral in a broad category, adulterers, adulterers, effeminate homosexuals. Here is this command then. Don't be like that. Those people are going to receive uh, the punishment of God. It goes on in verse 10. Thieves. We think, well, oh, what's so bad about thieves? Well, God said, don't steal. Don't take other people's stuff. Don't uh, encroach upon uh, the property, the private property of other people. You shall not steal. It's kind of a, one of those Ten Commandments and stuff. And Paul says, you who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? Do you take stuff because you think somehow you deserve it or, or whatever? The contrary command is Ephesians 4 and verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer. And the contrast is not just that. I'm not a thief anymore. Well, are you giving? Because he says he must labor, so not stealing, now working, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will be able to have something to share with the one who has need. So it's not a, a feeling or a motivation to get what I can, you know, get what I can for my own self. Now it's something, what can I do so I can have open hands to give to other people, whoever has need? So you see the contrast. Thieves can change to be generous givers, donors, and, and, uh, and there are, there's a prospect and a command to change. He says, not the greedy. The greedy will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are covetous, those who desire things that are not theirs. We see, again, that that's the 10th commandment. You should not covet anything that belongs to your other, your neighbor and so forth. Greed is a key characteristic of the unrighteous. It's one of those things that characterize the fallen heart of man, um, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit. This is uh, Mark 7, also in, in Matthew 15 would, would have a similar context. And he says, or the contrast is, Luke 12 and verse 15, watch out, Jesus says, and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Doesn't matter what you have. You always want something more. That's what greed is. Just a little bit more. Just something, just a whole lot more. I can't stand not having all that I want. It's, it's greed, and it, it will never end. It says drunkards or drunkenness is, is something that will receive God's wrath. And we think, well, but alcoholics are born that way too, a genetic, genetic predisposition. 
Maybe, but it's also a choice. If you know that you have a genetic predisposition or just a predisposition towards some sin, this is what God is saying, some unrighteousness, what should you do to limit your exposure to it? Uh, susceptibility to this temptation or that temptation, well, do what you can to get it out of your life. Don't go and, and have a meal at the local bar thinking, oh, I'll be fine, and then you're drunk. What drunkenness is is a violation of God's design. It is not something that is to be practiced by God's people. He says, Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation or debauchery or just uh, lascivious living, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunkards. First Thessalonians 5 would talk about that as well. He says, revilers. Revilers will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is one who engages in slandering, it's violent words against other people. A reviling, a slandering, having evil speech, which, again, Ephesians 4, verse 29 says, don't let any unwholesome word, any unwholesome word, don't let anything unwholesome come out of your mouth, but only that which is good, that would give grace to build up to other people. And so reviling is not something that we should do. Swindlers are, is a little bit different than thieves. Thieves would are kind of opportunistic and you just swipe something uh, and and take it. But a swindler is something who uh, will use violence to get what they want, and they will forcefully take what they want, what they desire. We are not to be robbers in this way. Even Jesus, we follow his example uh, that Philippians 2 uses this idea of swindlers. And he says, God, Christ, who, though existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, even though it was his own, held on to violently and, and denied the implication of his incarnation and his humbling that goes on there in Philippians 2. Instead of being swindlers or, or violently taking or keeping what we think is ours, Hebrews 10 and verse 34 says, You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted with joy the seizure of your possessions. So instead of holding on and, and clasping things, well, we have open hands. God, these are evil people taking it, but I'm, I'm fine. I'm trusting you. I'm accepting with joy the seizure of your possessions, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. Wow, well, that's a contrast that we see here. He says all these kinds of people and many more examples of unrighteousness, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Same phrase as back in verse 9, to receive a, a, a good thing, to receive a, a, a substantial a boon or a blessing. We won't see the kingdom of God. Now he says in verse 11, this is what gives us hope. Such were some of you. Oh, such were some. How dare, Paul, how dare you bring up our past? We're clothed in Christ. We're righteous in Christ. And, and by the way, I wasn't, I wasn't a swindler. I wasn't a robber. I wasn't an adulterer. I didn't do any of those things. Such were some of you. You had a wicked heart. You needed to be forgiven by God. You needed to find your righteousness in Christ. Such were some of you used to characterize your life. Maybe not the full expression of all these different sins or other sins that could have been included in that thing, but such were some of you. In our own natural uh, identity, we're, we're rebels. We are defiant. We, we either raise up our hands or just quietly do our own thing and say, God, whatever. That's life, but it's a wicked life, and it's a life that receives God's displeasure, his wrath upon us. Don't you know, such were some of you. And he gives these three different examples here. And in my mind, they're kind of backward. He talks about being washed, sanctified, and justified. Washed, sanctified, and justified. Now, 
I won't, don't want to belabor this too much, but you, we've, we've looked at this order of salvation before, and we can consider uh, how, from our perspective, and, and God is in the heavens, and, and he's eternal, he's outside of time, so is there an ABC procession? I don't know, but from our perspective, election precedes or, or is the first uh, step or order uh, aspect of salvation then calling or the regeneration, the, the new heart, the new new life that we have, the conversion, which is our personal responsibility of, of repenting and trusting Christ. Then there's justification. Then there's adoption, sanctification, perseverance, glorification. In other words, Paul says you are washed, sanctified, justified. If you look at this order, suggested order of, of salvation, we see that you're justified and then sanctified. And we would kind of view washing as part of that sanctification process. But he says it this way. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. There's hope in this, I guess is the bottom line. There's hope in this. You don't have to be the same thing that you were growing up. You don't have to be characterized, well, my daddy was a thief, and I guess I'll be a thief too. Or my daddy was a drunkard, or my mama was a, a swindler, or my mom used the Lord's name so many different times. I have to do the same. No, there's hope. Such were some of you, but you have been washed. You have been made new. You have been cleansed. You have been purified in Christ. There is something that changes in our lives, and we have great hope. Even a command, by the way, James 4 and verse 8 says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Whoa. You draw near to God, and you'll be consumed with fire. That's what Exodus 20 and 19, I guess, said. Don't let anyone touch the mountain or come near to it. Don't even let the animals touch it, because I will consume them. Here, he says, draw near to God, and it'll be fine. He will draw near to you, not in judgment, but in grace and mercy. But he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James 4 and verse 8. So there is a responsibility as we come before the Lord put off these things, the sins that so easily entrap us, to, to, to cleanse ourselves from these defilements of the flesh. We have the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit that is given to us by grace through faith in Christ. We have been sanctified. We used to be rebellious. We used to be unrighteous, but now we're washed. We are sanctified. We are being sanctified. We have been sanctified. We've been put into Christ. We are positionally in Christ. But we have our daily practice. Oh, we need to change. We need to change our thinking. We need to, don't let any wholesome word proceed in your mouth. We need to value other people, love, lay down our lives for the brothers. We need to be sanctified, made more like Jesus every day. All of this, by the way, flows from our justification. We don't have a good standing before God because somehow we've cleaned up our own lives and now God has to. He's forced to accept us. No, we have been accepted in Christ, by repentance, by faith. We have been justified. We have been declared legally righteous. And it is in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. It's accomplished through the blood, through the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is applied to us by the Spirit of God, applied the salvation, applied into our hearts, and made us new. We're new creatures in Christ. I want to close, and I think it's right here. Yes, here it is. Just a few elements of repentance. I'm going to do this really quick and be done because repentance is that key thing. Is there any hope for an unrighteous person to become righteous? Yes, and it has to do with repentance and faith. I'm going to focus on this repentance thing because this conversion therapy rule is they, people who are born that way cannot and should not change. Well, yes, they can, and yes, they should. Yes, they can, and yes, they should. What, what, what should it look like? What is repentance? There are three elements. 
in my presentation of it. You can uh, amend them if you will. But uh, element, first element is conviction. I'm a sinner. I acknowledge my sin. I know I've done wrong. But that's not enough. I mean, in, in some respects, everybody knows. Well, at least everybody knows that the other person is a sinner. Whether it comes to realize I myself am a sinner, well, maybe. But contrition. I know I'm a sinner, and I hate it about me. I regret my sin. I know that I have done what is evil before God. I feel sorrow over this thing. And much more could be said about these things, by the way. But just to, as a summary, to acknowledge I am a sinner, I regret it. I don't like it about me. I wish it weren't so. I wish there was something to do about it. Well, there is. Correction. That is turning away from sin. There are many people who would say, well, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm not going to do anything about it. I don't feel bad about it. It's like the adulteress in Proverbs 8, is it? I don't remember where it is. That she commits this sin, wipes her mouth, and says, what? What? <laughs> do you recognize what you just did? Adulteress? Acknowledge your sin. Regret it. I mean, hate it. Oh, I'm so sorrowful. I'm God, I offended you. Psalm 51 we just read. We sang. Against you and you only have I sinned done what was evil in your sight. You are justified in your righteous judgment. Regret your sin. It's against God, against other people. It is horrible. And then turn from it. See, many people would, would stop too early. Yes, I'm a sinner, but I can't do anything about it. Yes, I'm a sinner. I hate it about me, but I don't know what to do. Turn from it. Turn from it. Don't continue in that sin. Where is that going to get you? Romans 6 uh, Tremendous. We read it at lunch, I think, yesterday. Tremendous passage. Read that passage, Romans 6. He says, What are you, what benefit are you not arriving from the things of which you or you're ashamed of now? You can't stand all these things. But what why do you think that somehow you should continue in those sins? Well, so that God's grace can abound. No, if you have been dead and, and buried with Christ and raised up together, why should we continue in sin so that grace could abound? That's now how it works. We have been raised up to walk in newness of life. We have been converted to be like Christ and made more like him every day until that final day when we shall see him and we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for your kindness, your persevering love to us through Christ. And we pray that we would be very gracious to thieves and adulterers and immoral and greedy and all these different sins that characterize our lives, characterize worldliness and wickedness in this fallen and mixed up generation. And yet your gospel is powerful. It changes our destiny, you know, whether we're in Christ, in the kingdom of God or not. And it changes our time right now, the practice, our, our daily conduct it can change. We pray that you'd be very gracious to many who are lost in their sin and not anywhere close to repentance, not anywhere close to a feeling of conviction of the sin or a contrition regarding sin or certainly not a correction regarding sin. But we pray that you would change hearts for your glory. You said that you would establish a great assembly of redeemed humanity to worship and love your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so grateful that you're building your church we know that the gates of Hades or hell will not prevail against it. You are doing that. We pray that our brothers in Canada and here in the States and around the world would be focused on sharing the truth of your grace, of your kindness to us in Christ, and certainly recognizing there's a time coming when all will be set right. Evildoers will be punished, and those who are in Christ will receive that wonderful unearned statement from Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. 
please save, please sanctify for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.